This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome to another episode of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. Today, I'm sitting down with Jason Edward Lewis to talk about the relationship between indigenous communities and tech. For a long time, the term indigeneity has been associated with concepts of pastness. Popular culture tends to cast indigenous cultures as belonging to that past, sometimes to a mythical past. Meanwhile, our conversations about technology almost always associate technological production with an imagined future, often in ways that eliminate concepts of tradition and that exclude indigenous cultures and persons in that imagining. In this episode, I talk with Jason about how indigenous people are imagining these futures while drawing upon their heritage. How can we broaden the discussions regarding technology and society to include indigenous perspectives? How can we design and create technologies that center indigenous concerns and that accommodate a diversity of thought and culture? And how can art-led technology research and the use of computational art help us in imagining these features? Jason Edward Lewis is a digital media theorist, poet, and software designer. He founded OBX Laboratory for Experimental Media, where he conducts research and creation projects exploring computation as a creative and cultural material. Lewis is deeply committed to developing intriguing new forms of expression by working on conceptual, critical, creative, and technical levels simultaneously. He is the University Research Chair in Computational Media and the Indigenous Future Imaginary, as well as Professor of Computation Arts at Concordia University. Lewis directs the Initiative for Indigenous Futures and co-directs the Indigenous Futures Research Center, the Indigenous Protocol and AI Workshops, the Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace Research Network, and the Skins Workshop on Aboriginal original storytelling and video game design. Lewis's creative and production work has been featured at Ars Electronica, MobileFest, Electra, Urban Screens, ISEA, SIGGRAPH, FILE, and the Hawaiian International Film Festival, among other venues, and has been recognized with the inaugural Robert Coover Award for the Best Work of Electronic Literature, two Prix Ars Electronica Honorable Mentions, and several imaginative Best New Media Awards and multiple solo exhibitions. His research interests include emergent media theory and history and methodologies for conducting art-led technology research. In addition to being lead author on the award-winning Making Kin with the Machines essay and the editor of the groundbreaking Indigenous Protocol and Artificial Intelligence position paper, he has contributed to chapters in collected editions featuring Indigenous Futures, Mobile Media, Video Game Design, Machinima, and Experimental Pedagogy with Indigenous Communities. Lewis has worked in a range of industrial research settings, including Interval Research, U.S. West's Advanced Technology Group, and the Institute for Research on Learning. And at the turn of the century, he founded and ran a research studio for the venture capital firm Arts Alliance. Lewis is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, as well as a former Trudeau, Carnegie, and ISO-MIT Co-Creation Lab Fellow. He received a BS in Symbolic Systems, Cognitive Science, and a BA in German Studies, Philosophy from Stanford University, and a Master of Philosophy in Design from the Royal College of Art. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. I'm really, really thrilled to have this conversation with you today. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I thought I'd start off by asking you to talk a little bit about the Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace initiative that you co-founded in 2005. What led you to the project? What was it responding to? What ethic or set of ethics did it seek to develop? Okay, Deb. Um, so we, I, so I started Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace with my partner, now wife, Skawanati. Um, she is a visual artist from Ganawage, the, the Mohawk Reserve just outside of, of uh, Montreal here. And we met in the late, 90s and part of what she was doing then was something called uh, cyber powwow which first started in 1996 which was an online gallery and it was like the, it was the first online gallery for for indigenous artists the first iteration happened in 1996 and then she did four more uh, over the next uh, about six years she asked me to come in on the third one as an artist and then uh, on the fourth one as a co-curator and a writer and a big part of what Cyber Powwow was looking at is, you know, so what does it mean to be indigenous in cyberspace? Like so much of the the discourse around indigeneity, particularly then, was around both sort of like territory, right? That's sort of part of what makes you indigenous is in an essential sense is the territory that you belong to and that belongs to you. And then also these ideas that in order to be really indigenous, that in some ways means to kind of recapitulate the past and that things that we did as indigenous people that were modern sort of took us away from being indigenous. And this was something that, you know, is actually enshrined in Canada in law, right? So in Canada with the Indian Act, if you went to university to get a degree, you lost your indigenous status. Right. Um, and there were other things in there that basically said, if you wanted to be a fully full participant in the, you know, the the modern world, whenever modern was, you know, 1800, 1900, 20th century, 20th, uh, 20s, um, 2000s, um, that you the only way you could do that was by leaving your Indianness behind. Not one of those things was just sort of like what people said to each other, what people expected it was actually enshrined in law. and. So part of what she was trying to do with Cyber Powwow was kind of push back against both of those things and say, no, I can be Mohawk in her case. I can be Mohawk and be a web designer and sort of inhabit cyberspace. And she wanted to encourage other indigenous folks, indigenous artists in particular, to do the same. So when I came in and we started our conversation, I was very much interested in this and, and supportive of it. And found it a really interesting set of conceptual kind of challenges to think through from the technological perspective and from the cultural perspective. So fast forward a little bit, 2004, 2005, we've been talking with a, a small group of other indigenous artists and thinkers and finding other people who were really eager to kind of jump into this cyberspace and sort of explore it, but people feeling tentative, feeling like they didn't have enough training, etc. So we managed to get some money from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council up here in Canada to fund what became Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace, to explore, to sort of discover, to articulate, to create, to build technology all around getting more Indigenous people engaged with 
digital technologies. And so when we say cyberspace, we really mean kind of the whole range of, you know, virtual environments and video games and websites and blogs, all those sorts of things that kind of constitute our um, sort of the other place that we inhabit, uh, you know, for a lot of our time these days, like we are right now. So we did a couple of different things. We got a big group of people together for a couple of different meetings. I just realized this is totally, this is like my, my process. I'm in the middle of writing a grant, three grants right now. And this is exactly <laughs> the same thing, Been doing the exact same thing for 20 years, right? Is we got a big group of people together for a couple of meetings and basically said, Hey, we think this is really interesting. Do you, first of all, do you think it's interesting? you know, or is it just us, you know, in our bubble? And secondly, what do you think we should do about it? And so out of that came a number of different projects. So the Skins Workshops on Aboriginal Storytelling and, and Digital Media Design, because we had one of our, I would call elders, she may not want to be called an elder, or maybe at that point she didn't, um, who said, well, you know, whatever you do, you got to get to the youth, right? You got to get to the youth so they can build this stuff themselves, right? instead of us being reliant on other people all the time. And that's where the Skins workshops came. They're all about capacity building with digital technologies. Uh, there's a number of art projects that came out of it, uh, particularly around machinima. So that's machine cinema or movie making and virtual worlds. Uh, so we, we uh, bought an island in Second Life and uh, built it out as our virtual headquarters. And then Scabonata used it as the, the virtual set for the, the, the art videos that she was making. Um, and we did a bunch of other sort of things as well. So did that answer the question? I think so. And I wanted to actually follow up on something you said at the beginning of your answer, which is quite interesting to me. I, I think I remember uh, an interview conducted by you with Dr. Kim Talbert, where you talked about the, the focus that Indigenous studies has typically had on the past or commemorative or recovery projects, recovery within the context of thinking about the past of Indigenous experiences. But, and here I'm going to take a page from Afrofuturism, which says somewhat of the same thing about creating counter commemorative uh, narratives to, in a sense, combat or perhaps provide a counterpart to what are, what are in literary studies called um, master narratives about the past, typically white, typically male, typically European. One thing that I understand you thinking about is the importance of not just recovering the past, not just mourning the past, not just attempting to reconstruct the past, but also imagining futures. How are you thinking about this idea of imagining futures? What's the connection there uh, for you to thinking about an ethics of technology? Is there a particular engagement or ethic of thinking about tech in this context? So one of the core problems with, let's just say AI ethics, uh, but it's kind of a stand-in for tech ethics in, in general, is that there is a bunch of assumptions that go into it that are built largely around and out of kind of the Western European and then, you know, North American post-enlightenment liberal subject. And that's kind of what the whole like human rights framework is built around. And it's sort of like where a lot of this ethics stuff, stuff works sort of kind of finds it, tries to find it, its footing. But that assumption, that, that subject that it assumes is not a universal subject as much as it would like it to be, right? As much as the Declaration of Human Rights is considered a universal Declaration of Human Rights, the fact of the matter is, is that it privileges the individual over the, the community. It 
doesn't say anything about our responsibilities to the environment or to other non other non-human entities in our circle of network of relationships. And there's other things too that when you look at it from you know a different cultural perspective, like a Hawaiian perspective or Mohawk or Lakota or Cree, you you can see that there's these assumptions in there that have made it so that these ethics efforts haven't kept us from barreling down a really kind of self-destructive track. And I would argue that that's at least in part because they're based on this individual subject who ultimately his own, his, his only responsibility is to take care of himself. This is really fascinating for me. I've got a project right now that is looking at the twinned histories of a kind of Western epistemology of human rights and a Western genealogy of technological production. So I'm really interested. Oh, I want to see that. I want to see it. I want to see it. When you've written it up. (laughs) I'm really interested in this idea as well. And one of the arenas, of course, that I would look at that I think is in the category of the latter, but very much embodies the values of the former, which is to say the uh, production of technology in the arena of a kind of utopian vision of human rights developing uh, with a kind of utopian vision is uh, Silicon Valley, of course. And you've mentioned, or at least I, I remember you mentioning before that part of the problem with the scaling that happens in Silicon Valley, venture capital and capitalism, and perhaps we can extend that to technological production and human rights as well, is that it, and I'm going to quote you here, runs over difference, crushes it, excludes it from your results. Is this the kind of thing that you're talking about when you talk about this kind of universalizing tendency? The idea, I think, that technology companies completely disregard the very unique stakeholders affected by their designs, who are perhaps a much more diverse set of entities that then are imagined by the people uh, in Silicon Valley and don't recognize those differences among the indigenous community specifically, but broader in the context of a a global diverse world, I think is pretty uh, pervasive and entrenched in our society. How then would you advise us to ethically create both local relationships that will allow us to collaborate and create equitable technologies that are community serving when we're also participating in a global sphere? So that's a great question. And really, that's at the heart of what I am am trying to do next, is try to think through what are the what are the research and development structures that allow us to work in a way that is really fitted to local requirements and local values, but is able to take advantage of the things that we are learning on a global scale? Meaning that that they're, you know, just because I'm working locally, say, in Montreal, and I'm working in, say, Ganawage or Haudenosaunee territory, doesn't mean that everything that might be useful to the people as territory just comes from this territory, right? There's lots of things that are sort of developed and discovered and used elsewhere that maybe can be used. So part of the equation is about sovereignty, right? So who gets to decide what gets done in a particular place? You know, this is one of the the moments we're living in right now is, is people across the political spectrum, you know, sort of really seeing how much sovereignty we've given up to say transnational corporations, where we we thought <laughs> we thought we were investing sovereignty at least in the nation state and it turns out there's big chunks of sovereignty that we've kind of given up and the nation states have given up to these transnational corporations you know i don't think this is just about indigenous people necessarily um i think that there's lots of communities that 
kind of look around and they're like, well, look, you know, the solutions that were developed here, the, the solutions that we're dealing with were not developed here. And it's missing X, Y, and Z about the lived reality of being in this place. And in some cases, not only is it missing something, it's actually destructive to how we want to live in this place. How can we do that? But at the same time, you know, most of the indigenous people I know, the communities I work with are not, you know, they're not technology deniers. They're not people who are like, oh, we don't want to use technology. They just want to use technology that's beneficial to them and not imposed on them and not detrimental to them. You know, and particularly as indigenous people, you know, we've been at the pointy end of the, the Western technology stick for 500 years, right? So we've been the ones who have suffered from and also been the experimental subjects of all kinds of nasty pieces of Western technology, uh, both physical and biological technology. And so there is a skepticism that is in some ways what I would say is the real opposite of the Silicon Valley techno-utopianism, right? So I don't think the real opposite is Ludditeism, like, okay, let's, let's, well, in the very particular sense of like, let's, let's destroy the machines, but it's actually more in the sense of the Luddite sense of like, well, it's not actually about destroying the machines. It's the fact that the machines and the people own them are destroying our jobs, right? It's that sort of sense of, of how do we take advantage of these amazing things that have been discovered and developed, uh, but then shape them in the direction that we, we want to shape them. In. And that's where the ethics comes in is it comes in, in terms of how, who are your res ethics responding to? Right. And, uh, as, uh, Kamala Enos, who is one of the people I work with in Hawaii, he's the head of the office of indigenous innovation at the university of Hawaii says, you know, he says, you know, what does your, what does your science optimize for? right? And that's an ethical question, really, right? It's like, okay, are you, opt what, are you optimizing for extraction, right? Are you optimizing for community well-being? Are you optimizing for profit, right? Like, this is an ethical question. It's about science, right? But it's an ethical question. I did want to ask you about this idea that Indigenous communities can take mass-produced technologies and bend them or deconstruct them and what that might look like. Do you have an example of a moment or a particular action where you saw this happening or where you see this happening? Well, I mean, I, see, I, I think it happened with the internet, right? Like, I think that, you know, one of the reasons why the internet is, is, is kind of complicated is that, on the one hand, it's been like most popular technology or media, it's not been a particularly good place for either representations of indigenous people or even for indigenous people to be online in the sense of, you know, getting attacked and harassed and um, trolled by racist and things like that. But at the same time, it's become a really essential part of many communities and how they stay knitted together. And then how communities that are separate from each other, particularly across Canada, this is even more, I think, um, extreme in Canada than it is in the States, because Canada is so sparsely settled, is that, you know, the communities are very, very far apart. And this was part of Scavenati's original vision for Cyber Powwow was like, this is a way to help us stay connected together, you know, even though we have these crazy distances between us. And so, that's one of the things I really think about. And I have a colleague here at Concordia, uh, Dr. Heather Iglielorte, 
who is Inuit and an art historian. You know, one of the things she talks about is how Facebook has become really woven into the kind of fabric of communities up north. And that part of the reason is, is that Facebook in its drive for global dominance has done a lot of work at optimizing for low bandwidth environments, right? So that you can still get your Facebook, even if you have a crappy connection. And so there's a not necessarily kind of communally minded drive behind them doing that. It's a profit drive, but it's turned out to be something of a tremendous beneficial to these communities because they're sitting in the context that Facebook is actually trying to optimize for, right? Um, I think there's it's an ongoing history of indigenous people localizing Western technology in order to survive. Um, it happened with it happened with with rifles, right? It happened with farming machinery. Uh, it's happened again and again and again. I think that for me, part of what I want to see happen differently or more in this wave, and I think we're finally in a position where we can actually do this, is I want us to get to the point where we're making the technology ourselves, right? So it's not a question of, you know, accepting what's handed down from the transnationals and then figuring out how we can kind of beat it into the shape that we need it to be in. But it's about like, okay, hmm, so how do we actually go about building some of these things from scratch, right? How do we go about building our own social network? How do we go about building our own uh, language recognition app? How do we go about, there's all sorts of different technologies where there's enough of the kind of ingredients floating around and the techniques are understood well enough that it doesn't require doing basic research in order to pull something together. What's required is redesigning it differently like redesigning how you put them together and then how they get and then how they get interfaced with individuals in the community that pushes them off in a different direction than where we're going now which is all really it's just about profit 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 um and you know big question that's come up in the last couple of years is you know people ask me like do you feel like there's been much progress you know, and, 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 you know, and some days it doesn't feel that way. And I think that down, I think down where you guys are, things are friggin' going backwards, but in general, yes, I think there's been a lot of progress. And one of the things is, is that the previous, you know, sort of previous technological kind of big jumps, there were hardly any indigenous people around and almost none of them in any position of power. Right. And so you get to the sort of the internet and it's not that there, were there weren't indigenous people I know of in positions of power, but the access was decentralized enough that allowed a number of indigenous people to come into that space, learn how to use it, and really kind of take some control over how they were using the technology. What excites me right now is I think as we're in the very early stages of trying to figure out what AI is and what it might be, is that there are far more indigenous people around who are interested in this, at least in some aspect and being trained in it in some aspect, that it's like, oh, we might actually be able to affect how this goes, right? At least for ourselves, right? Whether we affect how it goes through the larger context, I, you know, I don't know. We're still numerically quite um, small percentage-wise in North America at any rate. But I'm excited about the idea that, you know, we were able to get 30 Indigenous people together for the first Indigenous Protocol and AI workshop, right? Which 
I don't know, 10 years ago may not have been possible. Like there weren't enough people aware and trained and interested to do that. And I think I've gone way off what your original question was because I can't even remember what your original question was. <laughs> That's okay. Was I it? think that maybe before we go any further, I should ask you to maybe help us understand a couple of uh, key terms that we can use them for the rest of the conversation. I've heard you describe indigenous epistemology as, I'm going to quote you here, how to live in a world that works with all the other things, such as our kinship relationships. Can you help us understand the terms indigenous protocol, epistemology, ontology, and cosmology as you're using them in this idea of an indigenous epistemology that allows us to live in the world in a way that works with all the other things. How do those terms interact with a broader view of a better tech culture? So cosmology, the way that I use it is, you know, sort of where are we in the universe? Like what is our place in the universe? Ontology is what kind of beings are we? What does it mean to be human? or what does it mean to be one of the many entities in this world, right? Epistemology is how do we know what we know, right? So how do we generate knowledge? How do we validate it? How do we transmit it? And protocol is, in this context, well, in general, protocol is some mechanism by which action, in this case, usually human action, is directed. But part of the reason why we like the term protocol, I like, I, I should say me, you know, I'm geeky enough that I get off on this, right? Part of the reason we're like protocol, right, is that protocol is also a computer science term. It's an engineering term. It's a science term, right? That they do mean slightly different things, though different contexts, but it sort of really comes down to the right way of doing things, right? According to some larger, um, I would say cosmology, actually, some larger sort of sense of like, why are we here and why are we doing these things? Let me talk about indigenous epistemology. So part of what I'm interested in is the ways and how indigenous knowledge in indigenous contexts, at least the ones I'm familiar with, and I just, I usually start out by saying that, but I just want to make it really clear that, you know, indigenous is very varied, especially across the globe, even here, just in Canada. I'm not speaking for indigenous people. And I'm speaking from the work that I've been doing with the communities that I work with. Um, and the what is really fascinating to me is how knowledge is generated, validated, and transmitted in ways that are very different from the Western scientific method, for instance, right? That a lot of times the, the those things that Western anthropology in particular, but also political theory and other parts of the Western project have tried to teach us are simply cultural, right? Meaning the songs, dances, chants, all those different things. A lot of these cult a lot of these communities, those are actually knowledge practices, right? Those chants encode knowledge about the world, about the physical world, about the other entities in that world, and then also how we should be interacting with those entities and the world, right? So there's long lineages of knowledge that are being carried along with those chants, right? Not necessarily all of them, right? And going from community to community, it might be, it might be that one of these things might do more of that work than the other, right? So in one community, it might be more about, say, what's being communicated through hula, 
right? And another community, it might be what's being communicated through the drumming, right? But we spent generations having these practices dismissed as just cultural, like quotes, just cultural, and kind of bracketed out of the knowledge-making enterprise. And there's lots of reasons we can go into about why that happened. Some of it accidental, but some of it very deliberate, right? A very deliberate set of strategies to um, kind of erase our ways of knowing from the landscape so that the people erasing it could then own the landscape. They could come in and say, oh, the way that we have a dealing with the world is better, right? And more powerful and more effective. And, and this is one of the many things that we're going to use to displace you from possession of this territory, right? Because we need lots of reasons because we're thieves. So um, epistemology and digital epistemology is like looking at those, trying to really see those practices for the knowledge practices that they are, understand how they fit together within a particular community. And then for me, understand how they sit in relationship to other communities' epistemologies, right? So for me, I'm a, I'm a comparative guy. I'm super fascinated about looking at the differences in the similarities and complex structures and thinking about why are some things similar and why are some things different. Um, but it's also really about looking at how these differences are tied to territory, right? So how being raised in a particular territory gives rise to different knowledge practices. Um, and again, this is something that's been flattened by the Western Scientific Project, because the Western Scientific Project basically says that, you know, the highest good in that project is to find an abstract concept that can generalize across all instances, right? That's where the power is, right? That's where the real, like, ah, if I can find a law that I can apply everywhere, and then I, then I get to leverage that law across everyone, right? I get to be able to take it and then I'd be able to, in, to be able to enact it on everybody. And it's not black and white, right? So just in the same way I was talking about the technology, it's not a question of like using technology, not using technology. It's not like a question of like using Western technology, Western science or not using Western science, right? There's a really amazing array of knowledge practices that one can use to try to understand what is going on in the world. And so a big part of what we do is we try to we, try, we work with communities to understand their knowledge practices and think about how those knowledge practices can be augmented by computational technology. And that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to use one of those terms that you, that you gave me to talk about actually a, a Western uh, creed, which is move fast and break things, which I would also argue is in the sense, a knowledge practice. It is a kind of governing chant or statement that has been used to, as a lever in a sense, to enlist and to propose a number of different, I think, uh, cultural practices in Silicon Valley. You know, I, I have a larger comment about this, which has to do with the fact that move fast and break things as an outcome of Silicon Valley culture and as a galvanizing chant of Silicon Valley culture, to my mind, is actually tied to the genre and the tropes of the Western, which are all about moving fast and breaking things. It is about the conquering of the frontier and a kind of vigilante form of justice and a form of disruption that has 
as its end, the idea of absolute territorial gain and absolute production at the cost of breaking things. So I wonder if I could ask you about that knowledge practice of moving fast and breaking things. Where do you think that that comes from? Is that a inevitable outcome of the kind of Western discourse that led to the production of the California uh, American West? And how, in a sense, do we encourage slowing down and creating a broader cultural shift into understanding technology's greater web of connectivity? How do we intervene into that kind of dominating impulse? Well, I mean, the media cause, it comes from emotionally stunted 23-year-olds. <laughs> Right, who um, imbibed a certain ideology when they were in their teens and their 20s from the, say, kind of 90s generation of, you know, the first people to sort of move into the web and start doing investing around web and stuff like that. I was lucky that when I came into Silicon Valley at Interval Research in the early 90s, Interval Research was this really great conglomeration of uh, you know, people who had been involved in sort of say the first wave of innovation in Silicon Valley around chips. And then some people who were involved with the wave of innovation around games. And then some other people come kind of from that generation that kind of came of professional age in the 70s that was very married with a certain kind of hippie altruism about the ways in which these technologies would increase our freedom, sort of the whole, you know, the whole whole Earth's catalog sort of culture um, being married with a technological culture. And so these people were techno-optimists, uh, super very smart technological people, but also optimists about what these things would do. And part of what was interesting about inter being an interval in that time and watching the, the, the web come into being is seeing that dream slowly get soured by the drive for profit right and so how this this tool that was seen as something that could be incredibly emancipatory slowly got turned into a tool that was almost purely about uh you know making making profit so as this happened you know see it's hard for me because i was in silicon valley i know some of the i went to i went to stanford with some of these people knew some of them were in the same was in the same program with some of them you know, so it's hard for me to separate things out from their personalities sometimes. But I think that there is a marrying of a kind of a very kind of stunted emotional capacity on the individual part with much larger historical forces around Western notions of how to exploit whatever's around you. Right. So in this case, it was how do we exploit the net? How do we exploit the fact that people are coming online in such big numbers and it's it's super unregulated and in fact the people who should be regulating it regulating it don't even understand what's going on and it's like wow this is this wide this is this wild west right this is this frontier and we're gonna as you said we're gonna move fast and break things because there's no sheriff around right and they don't even kind of know what's going on and Never a moment to stop and really think like, oh, okay, actually, well, maybe we should take advantage of this to build up some really interesting community supporting technologies and practices. You know, it was always like, okay, how can we build quickly to scale so that we can lock in network effects and basically dominate the market? All of it covered in just a bunch of BS about society and community and helping to discover the world and all this stuff. 
that may not have been BS at the beginning, but it was very, very quickly, you know, turned out to be BS. So I do think that there is a connection between that move, that super adolescent move fast and break things. And in some ways, you know, a Western mindset that again, you know, not to sound repetitive, but is centered around and finds all justification in the individual and has kind of evacuated from the normal discourse or from the mainstream discourse, you know, different ways of talking about the community and about society um, that either get relegated to sort of like religion or down in the States, you know, immediately gets branded as like communism or socialism and all conversation about it gets shut down. So I think it's all, it's all mixed up in there, you know, enabled by finance, like totally amoral financial people. <laughs> I mean, really, let's be honest, you know, all those VCs on Sand Hill, I wouldn't trust them to do the right thing if my life depended on it. They're just very focused on alpha. And that's, that's the culture that they live in is it's all, it's all about the profit return. There's, there's no win in community. There's no win in the environment. I mean, there is now finally, because they can make a profit off it. So it all kind of came together in this, what is we now can see it was a toxic stew of enabling of people like Zuckerberg, right? To claim the mantle of those early techno-utopianists while basically being robber baron style capitalists. I'm reminded of a paper uh, by a colleague of yours, uh, Suzanne Kite, who talks about building Lakota ethics into AI in a paper that she titles, How to Build Anything Ethically. I take this as a kind of source guide for a counter narrative or a counter form of production to what you just talked about at Sand Hill Road or in Silicon Valley culture broadly. And in that paper, she writes that, and I'll quote the paper, some ideas proposed here in the context of addressing the ethics of each step of a building process are not currently possible. Some are possible if investment is made in the necessary research, and some are possible but only through a radical change in the way technology companies are run and the pyramid of compensation for the exploitation of resources is reversed. What are some of the actionable items for those at technology companies and for those who are critics of tech companies to make these radical changes and hopefully sooner rather than later? So I think there's there's a there's lots of things that can be done. I you know I think that there's in terms of really being conscious about your capacity building. Uh, so the new you know the new AI institute that Timnit Gebru just announced like a couple of days ago, I think is such an interesting model. It's like, okay, let's fully engage with the technology, but let's do it from a set of, of actually real ethical principles that will guide us in our development of the technology and in our analyses of what's going on. And I think the significant thing is that this seems like there's going to be enough resources there to make a difference, right? I mean, I think AI Now Institute is another example right, where there's enough resources in place that they've actually been able to help shape the conversation and, you know, all the way up to the policy level. And so I think those are ethical interventions, right? Those are ethical interventions into how this technology gets designed, developed, and deployed. We can argue and agree or disagree about how effective they are, like in, in like some 
some measurement of like the total technological output or something like that. But they're good starts, right? We all this stuff, I think part of what Suzanne is doing in that essay is is saying, okay, we gotta we have to start. We can't just throw up our arm, our hands and be like, okay, there's just no way for us right this moment to instantly make everything ethically. It's not a it's not an option to to not try. What you need to do is you need to try. I think that you know things like really rethinking how we train young engineers, right? Which is part of the what the the unit that Matthew is involved with here at Concordia was about was you know what is it? How do we actually create curriculum that gets our engineers to think deeply about these things, not just like, oh, okay, here's the ethics checkbox and I just got to go through it, but actually try to reorient kind of their basic idea of what they're there to do, you know? So I think there's things, there's lots of things like that that we can do that are much more manageable than, you know, changing global supply chains, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really hard problem. <laughs> We were chatting about this uh, before we started recording, and I'm relatively insistent that um, a lot of the changes, at least in the educational sphere, should happen in the context of humanities departments and not just engineering departments. And I've been delighted to have, at least in my teaching experience, a number of engineers in training pass through my ethical technology course, which I teach as a professor of English literature as a sci-fi course. and. Every quarter, the engineers-to-be get into my class and they say, well, why would a professor of English literature be teaching a ethics and technology course? And I like to say to them, and I like to say to people who wonder why a professor of English literature is teaching a sci-fi class and talking about the ethics of technology, that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine that thing. So it matters how we imagine, and it matters who does the imagining? How do you think about that as an indigenous scholar um, who's also interested in literary culture and products? I think you think you're right. It's absolutely essential um, that you know part of what colonialism did for us is it foreclosed all kinds of lines of future flight. First of all, tried to box us into the past and sort of make it so that the only agency that could be expected of us was whatever agency we might have had in the past, but we certainly don't have agency now and we're certainly not going to be agents in the future, right? So part of it is just simply opening up the idea that we can come back to a position of agency. And then it's thinking about what does that agency look like, right? How do we imagine those worlds to be? How do we imagine ourselves, our descendants, our, our communities to be? And then it's like, okay, so then how do we do that with each other? Right. So it's one thing to sort of imagine a future yourself. It's another thing to try to create a shared future with somebody else. You know, in doing all this stuff, I think we automatically start opening up different paths into the future. Even if we don't do that thing or move towards that thing we imagine, just the act of saying, oh, we might actually have some influence on the future is a huge win right? It's a huge win over feeling completely helpless about the future. And it's a huge win over feeling like, oh, there's not any possibility for you or people who look like you to have agency in that future. Um, and then also part of it too, is that, you know, we have, you know, there are really serious challenges that we, that we have 
today that our communities are facing. And I would like to think that meeting those challenges isn't challenges isn't just about surviving until tomorrow, right? But it's actually about moving things in a direction so that our seventh generation is living in a better situation um, than we are uh, with the colonialism, with the racism. And we need images of those futures to inspire each other and to inspire our youth and get our youth, our youth to start connecting their culture with the future because they're still getting a lot of messages that tell them that that's actually not, again, the more indigenous they are, the further they recede from the future is the message that they get. And so we're like, no, the more indigenous you are, the more you're reaching towards the future, right? To me, this is absolutely essential part of the whole project. And this is part of the work that we're trying to get off the ground now is really position the imaginaries as an essential part of the technological development process, right? And to be really conscious about it and be really conscious about who, as you said, who's doing the imagining, right? Because, you know, scratch, at least in my time in Silicon Valley, right? Scratch any of those people actually building the future. And they're, you know, they're huge science fiction geeks, right? And they're inspired by science fiction, you know, all kinds of science fiction, starting with, you know, H.G. Wells or, you know, going forward or, you know, Mary Shelley going forward. So sometimes it can feel like really ephemeral, like it, it feels really tenuous, that that kind of connection between the imaginaries and and then what kind of technologies people build. But I think that I think it's super solid, right? Is that they're, you know, people don't invent new technologies in a vacuum. They invent new technologies in part because they want to see new things in the world and you want they want to see new ways of being in the world. Um, and then these technologies are what help enable that. And this is all connected to what do you think is an interesting way of being in the world? And what do you think will be the ways that we are in the world in the future, right? And the, you know, the golden age of science fiction is like, oh, well, the way we're going to be in the world in the future is we're going to continue to be colonists, <laughs> right? We're going to run around the universe just the way we've run around this 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 globe, you know, and find things to exploit and extract and, you know, treat everything that we encounter as a hostile. So this back and forth between them, even this, you know, even, even all the, you know, the mounds of vomit, you know, that comes out of Elon Musk about the colonizing the solar system and the need to get off the planet and stuff like that. It's all, you know, it's like, oh, so adventurous and innovative. And it's like, oh, dude, you're just like, you're still masturbating to the same science fiction dream that was first thought up a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> like, come on, come up with something new and interesting. And it's such a failure imagination. Like Silicon Valley is really actually one of the most unimaginative places that you can be. And it's kind of depressing the amount of brain power and the amount of finance that are concentrated in that place, 90% of which is doing boring, self-serving stuff. It's my hope to try to redirect some of that, a little bit of that talent and a tiny, tiny bit of that finance, you know, into what I consider to be truly imaginative realities, which 
require us to rethink how we structure things, right? That's the thing is the imagination never goes to structure. It just goes to toys, <laughs> right? You know, it just goes to toys. <laughs> well, it's interesting because a number of, and this is not by design, I attempted to create a science fiction ethical technology course with the idea that many of the technologies that are developed in science fiction ultimately come to fruition as actual products or prompt uh, those of us who read those things to anticipate how to receive and respond to these technologies when they emerge. And not by design, but by default, the entire class is dystopian fiction. From the uh, original design for the internet, imagine an EM Forrester's The Machine Stops, to Homer G. Wells's War of the Worlds, which ultimately students discover was a political descent by H.G. Wells um, into the British invasion of Tasmania and a screed against um, colonialism to um, Dave Eggers's novel, The Circle, which is about a company that wants to know and create all forms of privacy-destroying uh, knowledge collection. Um, they're all dystopias, and yet somehow these dystopias end up as actual cultural imaginary products that are imagined to be helpful. I, I wanted to ask a question about one specific... Uh, <laughs> one, Sorry, one... It, just, it just reminds me of Starship Troopers, right? It's sort of like, oh, wait, okay, so wait, you think this, this is like a, this is an endorsement? <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on a second. You know, um, right. like you might want to watch that. The movie, the movie, the novel, not clear given Heinlein's politics, right? But the movie, right? You're like, okay, no, this is not, this is a critique here, you know? And it's like, they missed the joke. They missed the joke. That's the other thing, the horrible sense of humor in Silicon Valley. Anyways, go ahead. No, there's a there's a short story, a dystopian uh, short story that I teach every quarter by Rebecca Roanhorse titled Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience. TM, fine point, I think, on the TM. It's a short story that uses the technology of virtual reality to talk about cultural appropriation. And just for listeners, in the story, the main character, Jesse Turnblatt, who's described in the story as a, quote, Plains Indian nation nonspecific, and calls himself Jesse Turnblood to, quote, sound more Indian, engages with uh, white tourists in a virtual reality technology called Vision Quest, that allows those tourists to have a, quote, authentic exp Indian experience, TM. Short story, Jesse plays a movie Indian for the tourists. But by the end of the story, in this uh, short dystopian story, Jesse ends up being kicked out of his own story. The virtual reality technology becomes one through which the tourist appropriates Jesse's place in his own narrative, in his own space. There's so much to the story that we could talk about, including the beginning um, quote that Roanhorse takes from Sherman Alexie's How to Write the Great American Indian Novel, which is in the Great American Indian Novel when it's finally written, all of the white people will be Indians and all of the Indians will be ghosts. But I think I want to focus on how Roanhorse uses virtual reality as a metaphor for cultural appropriation. And also, I think, how the actual technology of virtual reality has become woven into the fabric of human life, how it has changed our values to propose that we can actually inhabit somebody else's experience, such to the point of cultural appropriation or phenomena already experienced um, 
in the context of the indigenous community becoming available to a broader swath of people who can inhabit it through this technology. Of course, literature makes somewhat of the same claim, right? That we can inhabit somebody else's experience momentarily by reading their stories. I think that that's part of the point of the Sherman Alexi epigraph. I, I guess to point this into a question that enlists Roanhorse's story, how do we think about the use of actual technologies as metaphors in stories, as they emerge into art? And how do you think about the interplay between the metaphorical uses of technological products and literary works and their reality as actual technologies? Well, the sneaky and dangerous thing about our metaphors is that sometimes they become reality, right? Without us really paying attention to them, becoming reality, right? They, they actually, and that's what, that's what Rebecca's piece is about. I would say that's one of the things that Rebecca piece is about. And I think in, that's part of what uh, Sherman Alexi is talking about with the quote uh, that you pulled from him is that there's always the possibility that language will lead us into sort of creating the reality that we're presenting with the language. And for me, where it becomes interesting with technology, like thinking about the difference between, like you say, like a novel and a VR experience, like trying to think about, okay, is it really, are we really encountering something different here? And that we should be worried about in a particular way that we're not worried about with books. Like, are we just overreacting, right? Because we've had books for a long time and, you know, books, we don't, we don't all live in books, right? But we could certainly say that, you know, books have been seminal parts of some pretty dramatic changes in human society over the last five years, right? In terms of propagating revolutionary ideas. Do you know the uh, Blake Houseman's uh, novel? Writing the no, Trail of Tears. Oh, goodness, Deb, you got to read that. Okay. I think you're going to love it. I really, really like Rebecca's uh, short story. This Writing the Trail of Tears is interesting uh, because what he's imagining is a virtual reality experience where people get to pay to, uh, to be on the Trail of Tears, right? A virtual simulation of the, the, the Cherokee removal. And... Oh, now I now you haven't read it, so I don't. I feel bad about saying. <laughs> it's okay. I I don't read for the plot. Go ahead and spoil it. Okay, uh, for okay. Me and, <laughs> for me and the two thousand people who listen to this. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I didn't really. I didn't. I, it's it's not really spoiling it, but part of what's interesting about it is that over time, the virtual reality sort of becomes inhabited. Like so, the the kind of the the virtual beings that are in there kind of start taking on a reality still within the construct not like they walk out of it like you know altered states right but they start to have autonomy and agency and part of the question is that i th i think is a bit ambiguous um is whether that's just purely kind of a computational function or are they actually being inhabited by the spirits of the little people that are part of cherokee mythology and so I think both in Rebecca's story are playing on, you know, questions around how, you know, it, it plays on questions of authenticity, right? So, you know, as we know from the current political moment, it's a huge issue. Well, at least in Canada, I don't know how hard it's hit the states of, you know, around people you know, claiming indigeneity, but not necessarily having indigeneity. So there's a whole, but even when people are all like, we're really clear that, you know, everybody here is indigenous, there's still a question sometimes like, you know, how indigenous are you, right? Did you grow up on the res? You know, are both your parents 
you know, indigenous, like so I had all kinds of questions about that around indigeneity. Um, there's of course, obviously been generations of intermarrying with non-indigenous people. And so what does that mean for the descendants? And that's part of what I see both what's going on in Sherman's quote, and also Rebecca's story, right? Is this idea is that over time we're being replaced, right? That the, the, the colonizer doesn't have to, no longer has to kill us off, right? There's just these other slow mechanisms that are much less visibly violent, but actually probably more effective at replacing us as the people of this land. And technology provides a way for us to, in some ways, play through that. That's part of what I think is happening with both these VR stories, for instance, is, you know, okay, it's one thing to read a book, you know, it's another thing to be somewhere where you are embodying being somebody else, supposedly, right? That's the idea in the VR pieces is that you're actually embodying this character um, and all sorts of issues around like, you know, how effective it is it to put on the skin of somebody in like the cyber sense, you know, it's not really walking in their shoes, uh, but that's sort of like, you know, how it's going to be sold. Um, and at some point, if there's enough of you doing this, then the people who are being represented get, get pushed out of the frame and nobody's around anymore to say, Oh, wait a second. They're not actually who they say they are. Right. Because the rhetoric has gone so far and the process has gone so far, you know, that now, and now it's embedded in the system that there's nobody to call out, you know, effectively the, the cuckoo's egg, the real thing has been replaced by something else. I don't know. Yeah. I know Matt probably about two days in. later, I'm going to write you. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I have a much better answer to that. Okay. Write me. I will happily have another conversation. I know Matt wanted to jump in. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the OBX labs project, which you direct. What is the project and how does that engage with this question of what art's role is and why we need it? So right now in 2021, the answer is why art is, the, for me, it's about the imaginaries. It's about the future imaginaries, right? And it's about creating the room to think and dream expansively about what kind of futures we want. And people coming from a creative practice are more practice at that, I would argue. It's not that, you know, they're the only people that can imagine for us, not by any means, but that part of what they have learned to do is to move from the blank page to something. And that's incredibly valuable when you're looking at the blank page of the future, right? And this is part of the reason why we say seven generations out is that, you know, the further out it get, we go, the more blank it gets, right? So if we're talking about the next generation, it's like, most of that is still filled in, right? There's not going to be big chunks of that that go away, right? But maybe if we go out, you know, two or 300 years, we can imagine a lot of what we're looking at now, you know, kind of being a race and there's more blankness to project out there what we want to do. And that's what artists are good at, right? Is projecting into those blank spaces and imagining what might be there, right? And what we can do there. So that's a big part of why I engage with art and I, I, we support the artists that we do, and we want to include art as a really central part of this next project around 
you know, indigenous perspectives on, on artificial intelligence. But I also think that, you know, art practice is really good at helping people, helping surface people's assumptions to themselves, um, looking at the world and having it, having your perspective shifted to be like, oh, oh it turns out that I had a perspective, right? Because most of the time we're just like, oh, I don't have perspective. That's just the world out there. Right. And I think art's really good at shifting it right in front of you, <laughs> you know, and 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 trying to get you to, to push you off balance a bit and um, and look at the world in a different way. And I think, you know, for me, a large, you know, an unending source of the problems that we have is our people's certainty that they know the way things are and their accompanying sort of disinterest and unwillingness to question how things that they have been taught are facts about the world, particularly about the accumulation of a series of arbitrary decisions, right? So I think, yeah, so I think art's good for, for all that stuff. And I think that um, we need to have creative practice wedded with technological practice to help us really think about interesting and useful ways to use the technology. And to some extent, to help us think about new technologies, but I actually don't think that's necessarily, I don't think that's necessary. I think there's a certain amount of kind of just basic monkey inquisitiveness that we have um, that doesn't, that isn't necessarily tied to imagination in the way that I'm talking about it. It just kind of seems how we built it's the reason why we're here, you know, and I don't know, you know, sea and enemies didn't rise to the top of the food chain. Um, so OBX Labs, I started when I got here at Concordia because I'd come from research labs in Silicon Valley. I've been incredibly blessed by the fact that I've spent most of my professional career in research environments and was lucky to have started in two of the more interesting research lab. So one was the Institute for Research on Learning, which was something that kind of was an offshoot of Xerox PARC uh, that was trying to understand how these kind of then new sort of personal computer systems could be effectively used for learning. And then Interval Research, which is which was uh, Paul Allen, the, the co-finder of Microsoft with Bill Gates. It was his sort of attempt at kind of a blue sky, big thinking research environment. And both of these environments were hyper- interdisciplinary. And the older I get and the more time I spend in academia, the more I recognize like how phenomenally fortunate I was to be kind of nurtured as a young researcher in these kind of environments where it was no big deal that next to me was a physicist and on the other side of me was an anthropologist. You know, we had a, a, a theater person, you know, Brenda Laurel, right? A theater person who, you know, also makes video games, you know, on the other side of the hallway. Like to me, that was just like, that's how this stuff is done, you know? And now I'm like, oh, this is not how it's done usually. And so when I, I got here, which is a whole other long story that's not necessary for the podcast, except for the fact that I didn't come back here with a job, right? I followed my beautiful wife uh, back here. And totally accidentally ended up in academia. Never thought for a second that I would be a professor 
was not part of my imaginary. Grew up in a family where nobody had gone to college. And even after I went to my undergraduate and my graduate work, never thought that I could be a professor. But luckily, Concordia was desperate. They had failed two searches to start this program. It's now computation arts to combine sort of computer science and creative practice. And so they were like, okay, you're breathing. You can program and you have an art practice. Okay, come, come and do this thing. <laughs> uh, and I, to me, it was just natural to start trying to recreate those research environments I had been in, in Silicon Valley. Because I was like, this is how you do research, right? This is how you make new things. You bring in people that have some really great technological competence. You bring in people who are really creative. And you bring in people who think critically about the world. And you get them all excited about working on things together. That's where interesting things come from. Uh, and so that's how OBX Labs started. And I asked one of my colleagues at the time, uh, Shashin Wei, he's at Arizona State University now, but I knew him from my Silicon Valley days. And, you know, I was like, how, because he had been in academia longer than me at Georgia Tech. I said, how do you start a lab? And he's like, come up with a name. <laughs> that's it. I was like, that's it. And he's like, yeah, that's it. And you know what? He was right. So I was like, okay, came up with the, lane, the name, you know, OBX Orange Box, because uh, I love orange and I didn't want a black box and I didn't want a white cube. So Orange Box. And I started and I was lucky to be helping to build this program that was looking for students that ran the full gamut from essentially engineers uh, to artists to, um, I would say, sort of, you know, social science and humanities people. So I had brilliant, brilliant students who uh, could operate across these different modalities. And we had a blast. Um, and we just started making things. That's it, really. I mean, <laughs> started making things. Uh, you know, it was interesting enough that people wanted to see them. Uh, it was research enough that the research agencies, the funding agencies wanted to fund them. And I, that's just what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Well, here's a question that I'm that I'm asking everybody in this series, and I'm especially excited to ask it to you because in addition to being a scholar of computational arts and a digital media artist yourself, you are, of course, as you talked about, uh, trained as a software designer and a technologist. And the question here is about the larger context of the series, which is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanistic driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. I feel like you have, you know, a incredibly uh, well-rounded important context to make a comment into that uh into that discourse. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what we do when we envision design and create technologies? They play the central role. So I think that as we talked about earlier, that the people that we should be centering in are trying to figure out how to build systems that work well with humans are the people who spend a lot of time thinking about humans, right? And the people who spend a lot of time studying humans, so humanities and then social sciences, that part of the, I would say, the North American sickness 
not so bad in Canada, so I'll just call it the American sickness as an American, is the relentless downplaying of those skills of critical thinking in favor of technological practice. That what we get is we get absolutely some really interesting technology, but no way of talking to each other about how to best use that technology. And so we can't, so since we're not capable of talking to each other, it just means the people who are the biggest assholes get to set the agenda because they're really loud and they don't care if they're assholes, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot you can get done in the world if you don't care you're an asshole. Like it can, it's, it's not that hard to be effective if you can get to the point that you're rich enough that when people really realize you're an asshole, it doesn't matter because you can just buy them, right? And so having people, training people, this just goes back to something I said earlier. So training people to ask why is absolutely central to us surviving, I think, as a species, right? Like, why is our social configuration the way it is? Why are we making this technology? You know, why have, you know, why do we think that, you know, capitalism is the, is the best way of organizing a society? You know, these are all questions that humanists, so humanities people in particular, I think are really good at, not because they have the right answer. So that's the other thing too, right? That gets misconstrued, right? It gets, it's, it, the, it's the result that gets emphasized and not the process. And for me, being trained in humanities, being trained in philosophy, absolutely central to my ability to understand arguments and to construct arguments and to question assumptions and do counterfactuals about what might happen under another set of assumptions. And Jesus, I don't claim anything that I've come up with through all of that is like the right way <laughs> or the way that we should go forward. But that's not the point, right? The point is, is that when we, uh, when we put our faith in a, the technological mindset, that when we valorize people because they're good at, you know, finding gaps in sort of kind of what we know from a technological sense and then exploiting those gaps to sell us lots of whatever it might be, that we're really abdicating a, a nuanced and effective way of thinking through the hard cost questions of how do we live with each other? Because the technology's gonna solve it, right? The technology, AI, you know, just put AI on it. AI is gonna solve it right? And back to what I said earlier, it's incredibly unimaginative. It's really lazy. Um, and it's not good for us, you know, as a culture. And it also, again, none of this stuff is black and white. It's not to say that I don't think that technologists have very important things to contribute in terms of their process and in terms of how they look at the world and think about the world. I think it's incredibly valuable. You know, that's why I do this work. It's just that we've really overbalanced in the direction of thinking that these people have something to say about the human condition and they do 
But for the most part, it's a really super narrow view of the human condition. And because they're so powerful, nobody questions them. You know, nobody says when they're like talk about humanity and how they're doing this for humanities, nobody's like, no, dude, you're doing it for you and people who look like you. Really? That's your imaginary, you know, and it actually leaves out a bunch of other people for lots of different reasons. You know, we all know that if like, you know, Elon Musk does actually manage to like create some kind of system for getting out into the solar system and mining things that all the money is just going to go to him, right? It's not going to help us. One final question. The series of which this episode is a part is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century, hopefully on this planet? We can build ethically. We're just choosing not to. Much of the things that we're told are constraints on building ethically are a series of choices that have been hardened into place by particular ideologies that favor capitalism, the individual, white men, but are presented as facts of the world. But they're not. They're contingent. They're really contingent. And for me as a teacher, that's, the, that's the, one of the main things I try to communicate is, you know, that if I took the facts of the world as I was told the facts of the world to be, I wouldn't be here for lots of different reasons. And that we owe it to ourselves and our imaginations of who we can be, both as individuals and as a culture, to constantly revisit those assumptions and think about how we can make these decisions differently. So what that does is it it opens up the space of like, oh, okay, this doesn't actually have to be that way, right? Like the reason why this is that way is because some engineer, you know, back in 1962, you know, was having a bad day and decided that, you know, that this particular procedure was going to be used instead of that particular procedure, right? Uh, or the reason why we have this thing today is because, you know, the dude who was making the decision was racist as fuck. And because of his position, was able to replicate that racism across huge amounts of people because of how he categorized them, for instance. So maintaining that sense of historical contingency, I think, is really central to understanding that we can do things more ethically than we do now. Not And it's not that it's going to be easy or anything like that, but it's that it's possible. It's really possible um, to start tracing back across that supply chain and rethinking every moment of that supply chain and trying to figure out if we can do things more ethically. I think this is also important too, right? We're not going to flip the switch from unethical to ethical overnight either. Right. It's not just a question of like scale, like how big the problem is. It's a question of like, we just need to make things, try to make things a bit more ethical. 
you know, and then hopefully the next, if we teach the next generation, right, they're going to try to make things a little bit more ethical, right? Now, climate change kind of screws with all that. So, you know, that one, I don't have any good ethical answers to, right? Like that's, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, we don't necessarily have that time, but we're certainly not moving fast. So we're kind of stuck and um, we just kind of know it's over there waiting for us but don't seem to have the tools as a species to, to really grapple with. Uh, and that one, I, yeah, that one I can't help you with, yeah. but, uh, building technology, <laughs> you know, I think it's, I think it's important to just recognize like, okay, almost everything about this, at least and down until you get to the physics layer is contingent, right? It's a series of decisions made by human beings only a small number of which were really about the optimal, let's just say, engineering necessity. And so many of which were made in terms like to in, in terms of make, you know, trade-offs between cost and time. Some were made just because bad, somebody was in a bad mood. You know, I love I love Steve Jobs for this because he's a perfect example, right? Like he, he he just embodies it. It's like, you know, the iPhone is like his baby. There was tons of decisions that were made, you know, in the process of, of creating that were down to his particular weirdnesses, right? And what he wanted to see in the world. For Christ's sake, this friggin' piece of crap MacBook Pro that I'm using from 2018 or 2019, you know, with all the different problems that it has because they were so obsessed with thinness, which was Steve Jobs' obsession, Right, he drove a multi-billion-dollar company into these crazy directions because of his personal obsessions. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was lucky. He was lucky <laughs> in that a chunk of his personal obsessions in the early days, in particular, matched well with what other people responded to. That does not make them universal. It does not make his preferences universal. It means that for a while there, he got lucky that the things that he was weird about actually resonated with other people, right? And he got rich, right? And created some amazing technology. But that's the thing is, is most of the time with our technology, it's made by these kind of faceless groups of people. Um, and so it's just easier to pick on Steve Jobs because he's one guy and he was always very clear about his preferences and his, you know, the, the oral histories and so forth about the company make it really clear. But it's just that it's an easier story to see. It's the same thing happening everywhere. You know, it's groups of people, it's groups of humans making human decisions that almost any one of them could have gone five different ways, at least, if not 50 different ways. And we have to understand that. We have to make sure we teach our youth to understand that so they do not accept these technologies in the same way they accept the fact that the sun comes up every day, okay? That's a fact, right? To those of you who are listening right now, that's like, oh, he doesn't really believe anything's a fact. No, that's a fact, sun comes up every day, right? There's lots of facts I believe in like that. But I don't believe that this technology had to be this way. I don't believe that AI had to be consumed by machine learning, right? I don't think that machine learning necessarily had to be built on such a corrupted, unethical base, right, of scraping the net for data, like not asked for, no consent, no work done on its provenance. Like looking back, I think, you know, even now it's already starting to happen now, but like, 
you know, 15 years from now, we're going to be like, what were we thinking? Talk about ethics, right? This was garbage. Even from an engineering standpoint, people should have been like, wait a second. We were taught in undergrad the garbage in, garbage out. Like, wait, hold on a second. You're shoveling mounds of garbage into this, you know? So anyways, I'm ranting now. <laughs> no, I like I that. Stop. I mean, I, I would say no <laughs> teleologies, no eschatologies. Things could have been otherwise, and they still can be. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so yeah. much, Jason. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 